Even before Michael Punkas' The Revenant was published in 2002, the film rights had been snapped up by the outrageously productive and successful screenwriter-producer Akiva Goldsman. Goldsman's credits include The Client, A Time to Kill, I, Robot, Mr and Mrs Smith, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, I Am Legend and Angels and Demons. Oh, and a screenplay for A Beautiful Mind won him an Academy Award. And I'd like to dedicate this award to my three parents, Tev Goldsman, Mira Rothenberg and Elizabeth Lee, who taught me that when understanding people who suffer from mental illness, it is good to have a beautiful mind, but a greater gift still is to discover a beautiful heart. Thank you for this. The Revenant takes place in 1823 and centres on Hugh Glass, a frontier furrier, who, out hunting in the untamed wilds of North Dakota, is savagely mauled by a bear. Glass then seeks revenge, not on the bear, but on his fellow furrier, John Fitzgerald, who abandoned him and left him for dead. Given that Glass was a real-life historical figure, whose exploits were enthusiastically reported by newspaper publishers during his lifetime, and that, prior to Punk's book, Glass's story had already been covered in novel form several times already, albeit by writers who never met their subject, it shouldn't come as any surprise that there are vast discrepancies from what is known about Glass's life, Punk's fictionalisation of that life, and the film adapted from Punk's novel. For instance, Glass managed to escape not one, but two attacks, not from bears, but from cannibals, before seeing his friend being roasted alive. And for all that terrifying adventure, the film opts instead to have Glass cut open his dead horse and sleep inside it to avoid freezing to death in snowy drifts. But either way, what intrigued Goldsman about Punk's book was the distilled essence of a revenge story. Only Goldsman didn't want to write the script, he wanted to produce. So, having secured the rights, he then engaged screenwriter David Rabe, whose bigger credits include Brian De Palma's Casualties of War and the adaptation of John Grisham's bestseller, The Firm. With Rabe's draft under his arm, Goldsman then approached celebrated South Korean director Park Chan-wook, most famous for the thriller Old Boy. Since that movie is also a streamlined tale of revenge, Goldsman's plan makes sense. Park said yes, things progressed, and Samuel L. Jackson was approached to play the lead. But then Park dropped out. Soon, so too did Jackson. Then Goldsman reached out to John Hillcote, who was attracting a lot of attention for his lean, mean, yet very moral adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's apocalyptic novel, The Road. Which again, considering that The Revenant is set in the wilderness, makes a lot of sense. Hillcote initially said yes, but again, after some progress, he too dropped out. Tell me you got some kind of plan. Glass. Missouri's no good. Not while the Reed's running it. You gotta get off this boat. Oh, you wanna get off the boat? Then what we gonna do, huh? We're gonna take our furs and sit out there amongst the reed like a bunch of goddamn ducks? The only safe thing to do is track a new course back up on land. Well, I'd reach to the trip. Had them flunk back down there where they can get eyes on us. They got eyes on you right now. Which begs the question, how would the Revenant have turned out if either Wook or Hillcote, or indeed Jackson, had stayed the course? Certainly, seeing Jackson as an early 19th century frontier furrier would have been a novel experience for audiences, bringing fresh iconography to an era in history that contemporary assumptions confine black people to severely limited roles. As for the directors, no one can be sure how the film might have turned out. But what we can ask is what did the film's ultimate director, Alejandro González Iñárritu, bring to the project? 
A good pointer is comparing the finished film to the script Goldsman commissioned from Mark L. Smith in 2010. While gripping, Smith's draft, which you can read online, is happy to embrace several cliches familiar to stories about men living in the wilderness. It also completely fabricates the glass out of family. Elsewhere, almost every situation is about life and death. And battling those dangers are individuals who are either short fuses looking out only for themselves, or less impatient characters more concerned with the collective. As always, there is a protagonist who is a mixture of both. And while Inaritu's changes may inject other familiarities, they are nonetheless welcome because they dilute the decrepit and debilitating desire for retribution that Smith distilled from Punka's novel. In that way, Inaritu turned a story about revenge into one of transcendence, where spiritual release is the enduring value. Which is surely why Goldsman engaged with Inaritu. But a vision like Inyaritu's is so unique and so powerful, it can be overwhelming. Which may explain in part why you don't see Akiva Goldsman's name credited anywhere on The Revenant. Here is Inyaritu being interviewed by fellow director Michael Mann at a recent DGA screening of the film. The theory was that always from the macro, so to the minimal, to the my major kind of thing. And, and it, it's very exciting that because when you stretch the, the vision that way, um, it has intimacy and has... I, I wanted some scenes to be, in a way, not not fragmented, and I want that suddenly we are experiencing uh, what want, went on in one of those characters, through being with him in his point of view, and show those kind of David Lean kind right. of things, but at the same time, whack, and go to a macro of, of what that scene is, is going through, the impact of some intimate moment of the emotional impact, and then go to what he's going and understand the physicality. So it was almost like a virtual reality that we were creating in order that audiences can get into that. Similar to, but pointedly different from his previous film, Birdman, Inyaritu structured The Revenant around several set pieces, many of which are dominated by long sinuous takes. But where Birdman straps itself to theatre actors whose performances need to be riveted to the here and now, the Revenant keeps reaching into the past that paradoxically propels the central character on a forward trajectory. Glass's emotions are rooted in the moment Fitzgerald betrayed him and left him for dead. And so it is Glass's desire for vengeance that drives the film. And yet, again paradoxically, Glass needs to escape that cycle of revenge if he is to stand any chance of emotional survival. And I think that is what adds an unexpected layer of interest to the story. Physical survival on the frontier can be secured, but at what cost? I need a horse and a gun. No, you need rest and something to eat. I'm going after him. No. He'll never find him without me. You wait till morning, I'll have a day's head start. He'll get away. No, he won't. He's afraid. He knows how far I came for him. Same as that elk, when they get afraid, they run deep into the woods. I got him trapped, he just, he doesn't know it yet. How can you be so sure? I think has everything to lose. By meticulously planning the action, blocking out the actors and the camera's long, sinuous movements, Inyaritu and the cinematographer Emmanuel Lebeski so immerse the audience in what is going on that we experience the brutal speed and chaos practically in the same real time as the events unfold. Now, while everyone is understandably marvelling at Lebeski's work, 
it would be neglectful not to acknowledge another crucial element of the film's immersive visual design. Part of that immersion comes from the authenticity of the film's sets. Here is production designer Jack Fisk, whose credits include several Terence Malick films with whom Lubeski has collaborated three times. I build sets as real as possible. And uh, so when a cinematographer or director wants to shoot 360, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's welcomed, you know, because I want to build the whole set. You know, I don't want to build a wall here and a wall there. Everything, every location that I find, the primary view will be south or toward the sun. Uh, we shoot everything backlit. Um, I know that on interiors, I need one source of light. Everything is oriented toward the sun. The actors are always on the z-axis, walking toward the sun. Uh, the sets, the feature view is always toward the sun. The only time we ever shoot north is after the sun is set. You know, so depending on what part of the hemisphere you're in, it could be 7:30 or it could be 8:30. Or Last, yesterday we were blessed because we had a lot of cloud cover, so there was no direct sun, which freed up the directions we could shoot in. A lot has also been made of Lebesky filming all but one of Fisk's sets in natural light. Astonishing as that is, I think it necessary to focus instead on Lebesky's use of lenses. Frequently, he moves his wide tracking shots into group shots and then two shots before sweeping around 180 degrees to rest on a choking close-up. To facilitate these intricate manoeuvres, Lubeski uses almost exclusively a 24mm lens. Shooting an entire film on the one lens is incredibly restrictive, as it can result with a repetitive engagement with every scene. No matter the location nor the action, every shot will eventually feel the same. Medium and telephoto lenses can break up that monotony. I mention all that because it's not just Lubeski's prowess over natural light that we should be marvelling at. Yes, natural light makes the film more immersive. But while the 24mm facilitates the move from wide to close-up, such lenses can, when deployed in the widescreen format, heavily distort the image, stretching and curving it at the edges, as well as, in close proximity, warping the human face. Furthermore, wide-angle lenses cannot but help exaggerate the speed of the camera as it tracks and pans through any given arena. Move too fast and everything becomes a blur which means your movements have to be blocked and paced with meticulous precision. Now, try maintaining that precision while also reaching for apparent spontaneous chaos. That Ignatitu and Lubeski chose such complex staging, instead of the easier and more familiar grammar of shot-reverse-shot, shows not only their tenacity, but also their ambition to stretch the language of cinema. Of course, it also deepens the story's verisimilitude. Here is Lubeski himself. So for those shots, you know, the, the, there were a couple of methodologies we used to, to shoot the film, and one was uh, of extensive rehearsal mm-hmm. time, and I think we probably rehearsed it a month or more than a month, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the scenes, especially all the beginning to the middle of the movie. And during those rehearsals is when we find the language of the film and the blocking and 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 during those rehearsals we learn also what kind of gear we want to use and which lenses and all of that. Ignatius' approach undoubtedly placed enormous demands on its cast, but it also assisted them in realising their performances in unexpected ways. Leonardo DiCaprio's choices deserve more than the many plaudits he has already been receiving. Compare him to the likes of Will Smith, Robert Downey Jr, Tom Cruise and Johnny Depp 
and you will realise that despite having been offered the likes of Batman Forever, the Star Wars prequels, The Matrix, Spider-Man and Angels and Demons, DiCaprio has never played a comic book hero or appeared in a franchise or sequel. In fact, you could argue that The Revenant is the nearest thing he has yet to come to making an action picture. And what a unique action picture it is. Yet, financially successful as DiCaprio's films eventually turn out to be, they are never sure things going in. On paper, there is always an enormous artistic risk. But I am convinced the rewards will far outlast many of those projects he has turned down. Casting superhero pictures or sci-fi fantasies, the expectation is that the producers will always go for a face that has a strong enough jawline to withstand the occasions where the character has to wear a mask. There needs to be a jutting chin for the audience to know that their $30 million star is somewhere beneath the latex. But while the right face is crucial, we should never lose sight of the fact that for male actors, some faces are simply too contemporary to ever convincingly be framed in a period picture. Just what is it about Bruce Willis, Harrison Ford, Nicolas Cage, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, Mark Wahlberg and George Clooney that are simply too modern? They don't seem to sit well in anything before the 20th century. While the converse can be said that some faces, Daniel Day-Lewis, Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe, Johnny Depp, Morgan Freeman, Colin Firth and Jude Law, that are just as comfortable in any era. The same goes for the two leads in The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy. Which of course is one of the reasons why the film works. You and your boy are the only ones who get to walk out alive. It's kind of a miracle, don't you think? Shut up, Fitzgerald. That what you did? Shot one of your own and saved this little dog right he here? Know what he wanted to fight, know. son? Why, was he playing with this little boy's mama? Huh? Fitzgerald! Did he kill her? Hey, you can quit polishing that rifle when I'm talking to you. I'm working on it. You can work on it later when I'm done talking to you. Look at me, scout. That's enough! You're forgetting your place, boy. Or as I can tell, my place is right here on the smart end of this rifle. Here is one final point to ponder. Although in no way can The Revenant be considered a Western, nonetheless, it does briefly present a reverse perspective of John Ford's Searchers, where Ethan Edwards spends years looking for his niece, who's been kidnapped by a tribe of Comanches. The Revenant opens with an Arakara war party attacking Glass and his fellow furriers partly because they are seeking their chief's daughter, Pawaka, who has been abducted, most likely by French furriers. During the course of his journey, Glass comes upon the same French group who are holding Pawaka, and it is clear that the only reason they are keeping her alive is for their heinous sexual gratification. Glass manages to free Pawaka, and by the end of the film, as he is about to murder Fitzgerald in revenge, he sees the Arakara party further along the river. They have managed to find Pawaka, and their search is over. In John Ford's The Searchers, despite being riven with a rabid racism, Edwards experiences a sudden transcendence. As if echoing Ford's Western, The Revenant finds a similar moment when Hugh Glass comes face to face with the decrepit desire of vengeance. In the hands of another director, the moment would have been a cliché, but honestly, it comes as a relief. There has already been such cruelty and suffering in the film that any moment of clemency, let alone kindness, comes at you like an emotional blanket. Soothing, liberating, and yes, transcendental, for it assures not only your physical survival, but also your humanity.